So beginning with the 15th day of the seventh month, after you have gathered the crops of the land, celebrate the festival to the Lord for seven days. The first day is a day of rest, and the eighth day also is a day of rest. On the first day, you are to take choice fruits from the trees and palm fronds, leafy branches and poplars, and rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. Celebrate this as a festival to the Lord for seven days each year. This is to be a lasting ordinance for the generations to come. Celebrate it in the seventh month. Live in booths for seven days. All native-born Israelites are to live in booths. So your descendants will know that I had the Israelites live in booths when I brought them out of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. And now we'll move to the New Testament. John 7, 37. On the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. This is the word of the Lord. Across Canada, statistically, over half of our university students describe themselves as feeling hopeless. One in five struggle with serious mental health issues, with depression and anxiety topping the list. I don't know if you saw the fairly old now McLean's article that named this the broken generation. And it was around the same time that Amanda's, Amanda Todd's death made the news. You may remember her story. She was bullied and stalked on Facebook. She was lonely and scared. She struggled with depression, a panic disorder. And on September 7th, she posted a YouTube video that told her story with index cards, flipping one to the next. The video went viral, and despite the fact that it did, on October 10th, she took her own life. Depression is not just a current reality for youth and young adults. It knows no generational boundaries. And depression is not the only issue. Mental health issues as a whole are diagnosed now more than ever before. I know people who struggle. We all do. This morning, we're going to talk about the wilderness. We're going to talk about those desert-like experiences in our life when we feel helpless or hopeless, when we're feeling lost, we've lost our sense of direction. And this morning, we're going to talk about hope. We're going to talk about 
hope that arrives in Jesus Christ, the hope that we cling to in the midst of not only this Thanksgiving Day weekend, but the whole of our lives. I actually wasn't going to tell you my own personal story, in part because it lengthens the message, but I think it provides a backdrop. So I want you to walk back with me, uh, well, over 18 years ago. I had known as a young child that I did struggle with some kind of darkness. I know now it was childhood depression. But it would come in seasons or waves. Some years were great and others not so much, and I couldn't explain why, even though my life was perfect. Perfect. By the time I hit university and got married, I was very good at keeping it hidden, not letting anyone know what was going on inside. When I graduated from Calvin College, my wife and I, Elaine, got married. We moved back to the Niagara region, and I started a job with my unmarketable English degree that didn't give me a whole lot of purpose. And even though we were freshly married, I kept the darkness that I was experiencing hidden entirely from Elaine. It's one of the biggest mistakes and most hurtful things I've ever done in my entire life. And as that uh, story unfolded and the darkness got worse, we actually ended up at a wedding, a wedding of my best man in my wedding. And that night, as we were celebrating amongst friends and I felt so entirely and utterly alone, I stepped outside. The reception hall was on a very busy street. And I stepped outside and started to bolt across the parking lot, fully intent on hitting, getting hit in traffic. And about halfway through that run across the parking lot, I felt the full weight of my friend slam me to the ground. And he held me there and refused to let go. And within seconds after him slamming me to the ground, Elaine was there holding me. And even though it was the two of them that pinned me there, I had never felt so held by God as I did in that moment. I knew through their actions that God was paying attention to me. In our time together this morning, there's only one thing that I want you to hear. One thing that I want you to hold on to and remember, and it's that God, when you are in the midst of a wilderness experience, God is paying attention to you too. And when you're not in the midst of one of those experiences, there are others around you who are you are invited to follow in God's footsteps through Jesus Christ and pay attention to them. Now, we've got to dig into our scripture here a little bit, and I want to start by saying, I think God has two obsessions. God loves the game of memory, you know, the one where you flip up the cards and try to match them. And God loves to throw huge parties. Let's start with his obsession with memory. 
God's constantly calling his people to remember. To remember that he brought them out of Egypt. To remember that he was the one who parted the Red Sea. And even in the New Testament, that he was the one to send his own son because he so loved the world. To remember and believe. It's at the heart of our communion celebration. God loves the game of memory. And God loves to throw big parties. Not just like one-nighters, but like seven-day-long parties. The Feast of Tabernacles that we read about is exactly one of those times when God instructed the Israelites to, to celebrate together, to gather together as his people. Why? His parties were always about remembering what he had done for them. If we want to know what God did for the Israelites in the desert, if we want to know what God did for the Israelites in the desert, then it's really important for us to understand this Feast of Tabernacles because it's that moment when God says, celebrate this for seven days and remember what I did for you when you were in the wilderness. And maybe if we understand the feast and what it meant to the Israelites, we'll catch a glimpse of the kind of feast that God's inviting us into when we're in the wilderness. Now, a number of months ago when I was looking at this scripture passage, I thought to myself, I could read a lot of books and dig into it, and I did read some. Or I could just email my Jewish colleague on the multi-faith team at the University of Guelph. And so that's what I did. I sent Michael Grand an email. Michael Grand is, is a lovely, now retired gentleman. And he's got this incredible gray beard, one of the long ones. And he looks like Moses. And for someone who shaves only like once every two weeks, I have, I have beard envy in the presence of Michael. But he's a man of great wisdom. And I sent Michael an email. I said, Michael, I would love to know more about what this feast means to you and your community still today. And he responded by saying, uh, that's too much for me to send back in an email. We need to sit and have coffee. And so we ended up sitting on a bench in the sunshine on a fall day, and he started telling me about what this feast really means to them as a community. And he said there's three lessons. He said there are three lessons that are really important to this festival, this festival in which they build huts. And you may have seen these huts. They're called sukkahs, and if they're plural, sukkot. And they build these huts, and they have branches over the roofs, leafy branches, poplar tree branches. And that time is a, a time when they're to remember their experience in the wilderness. Michael said there's three lessons. The first is that this feast is a festival that takes place in the midst of harvest season. It's their Thanksgiving Day celebration. And when they could be setting tables of plenty, stuffing themselves with mashed potatoes and turkey and pumpkin pie, they're told instead to build some fragile huts with leaky roofs 
and leave the comforts of their permanent homes and live there so they can remember the time when God provided for them in the midst of the wilderness. In the midst of their wilderness, there wasn't abundance. There was enough. Temporary residence, manna, quail, and water. The first lesson of the festival is that God always provides enough. The second lesson of the festival, he said, has to do with the roofs that are over these huts. They're made of branches, and they're actually supposed to leak. If you make them too well, you've missed the point. They're supposed to leak because that roof represents, represents the way that God sheltered them in the wilderness. And the fact that no matter what was covering them, he could see and was still watching over his people. The, the roofs remind us of Psalm 121, which we read earlier, where it says, He who watches over you will not slumber. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun will not harm you by day, nor the moon by night. Even in, when you're in that place of wilderness, God is watching over you. And the third, the third lesson has to do with the prayers that you offer when you're in those huts. It's when I was introduced to my new favorite Hebrew word, ushpizim. See, when you're gathered in those huts, in those booths, as a family, you're invited to pray, to pray that God would send ushpizim, or visitors, or guests, that's what the word means, visitors or guests. Because God has always shepherded his people through visitors or guests that he brought into their midst. And so the third lesson is that even in the wilderness, God will shepherd his people. God provides enough. God watches over. God shepherds. Three incredible lessons from this festival. Three incredible lessons that I believe point to one truth. God is paying attention. Always. Now why is it so important that God is paying attention to us? The kids have gone downstairs, but I'm sure some of you will resonate with some of their experiences. I have four kids. I know they're not here with me today, but I have four kids, and they, like many other kids, know what it's like to be left out at the playground, to not be invited into the soccer game as it unfolds, or now, ones in high school, to not be on the Snapchat kind of chain of communication. They know what it feels to be left out. And over the years, every once in a while, they'll tell me at night when I'm tucking them in in bed how their day went. And they don't tell me how their day went. 
because they want me to pick up the phone and call the teacher and say, um, could you please correct this behavior in the other kids in his class? They definitely don't want me to call the parents of the other kids. They tell me because they want to know that I'm paying attention. They don't want me to snap my fingers and make it better. They want to know that someone cares. And I don't believe as adults we're any different than we were when we were little kids. I watched a, a documentary a while back about philosopher Simone Weil. Simone Weil lived through World War I and in the aftermath of World War I. And she died at the age of 34, I think in large part because she cared too much for those around her. She desperately tried to live in solidarity with those who were suffering. During the war, she ate only the rations that the soldiers would have received, even though she had access to more. In the labor unrest in France afterwards, she decided that she would not heat her own home because so many people couldn't heat theirs. She was deeply empathetic. And two quotes from that documentary stand out to me as being deeply profound. These are the, the two quotes. The capacity to give one's attention, the capacity to pay attention to someone who is suffering is a very rare and difficult thing. It's almost a miracle. It is a miracle. And then she goes on to say, paying attention is the rarest and purest form of generosity. In our heart of hearts, I think we know this to be true. It is way easier to open up our wallets and throw some money in the collection plate, which I think is a beautiful thing to do, don't get me wrong. But it's even more difficult and more generous to genuinely walk with those who are marginalized or suffering. Paying attention is the rarest and purest form of generosity. Now, when I walked away from that bench with Michael still sitting there, after we had just talked about the lessons of the, the festival, I thought to myself, what does God do for us today when we're in the wilderness? We're not receiving manna and quail, but what does God provide for us? Is he really watching over us? Is he actually shepherding his people? Now here's the thing. I wonder if we still shouldn't be celebrating this festival, like building sakats or huts in our backyard today. Because the lessons, those three lessons from that festival are as important to us as they were to any previous generation. They are Lessons of hope for a hurting world. And we need to hear them. 
So how do they get told? How do these lessons get shaped and, and formed in us? How do they become part of our life? Let's start with the first one. The first lesson of this festival is that God in the wilderness provides enough. I want to tell you a quick story. I was sitting in my office on a Wednesday and I heard a knock on the door. I looked behind me and I saw a young woman standing there. I knew a little bit about her. I knew her program. I knew where she was from. She had stopped in at our weekly dinners a few times. But that's about it. She knocked on the door. She stepped in. And without stepping a whole lot further, you could see the tears already start to run down her cheeks. She sat down on the chair, and she told me about her experience growing up with a very distant father. She told me about the extent to which she could not love herself. She could not see herself as a beloved child of God. And she told me about the extent to which she's cutting herself inflicting self-harm. What do you say? What do you say when words seem so frivolous? I couldn't throw out any comments like, well, count your blessings, count them one by one, I'm sure you have some somewhere. I couldn't say to her, well, this is all part of God's big design, God's will, and it's unfolding so that you can experience the love and grace of God. Not in that moment I couldn't tell her that. What she wanted when she was in the wilderness was someone to listen. Someone with whom she could cry. Someone that might help her move towards taking baby steps. Baby steps towards healing. Maybe finding a counselor or two. What she didn't need was trite answers. She didn't he need me to say, God will provide enough for you. I do believe, though, that that's an incredibly important lesson. It's just not one that we're supposed to bring up in the midst of a conversation with someone who's crying. It's an incredibly important lesson, one that needs to be shaping who we are every day of our life. See, I really do believe that we need to tell our stories of those moments when God has provided, and I know God has provided enough for you in your life. At some point and in some time, God has carried you through the wilderness. And when you're done that experience, when you've moved through it, if you can share that story and reflect on it during the good times, it'll help carry you through the bad times. We need to take the lesson, this first lesson of the festival, and incorporate it into our worship, into our daily life, into our everyday liturgies, reminding ourselves in the good times that God does provide enough. God carries us through so that when we get to the bad times and we can't hear the beautiful sentence that God does provide enough, 
when we can't hear it, it will be so deeply ingrained in us that it still bubbles to the surface. Do you hear what I'm saying? This festival needs to be celebrated every day of our life. We need to be reminded of this all the time so that it is the foundation through which we can enter the wilderness. The second lesson is no less important than the first. The second lesson is that God watches over us. In times when we're in the wilderness, it's really important to not have such roofs over our lives that they don't leak. We need to be open, open and vulnerable, reminded that God is peering over us, watching us, caring for us like a mother does her chicks. The words of Psalm 121 ought to be a part of our life as a community in such a beautiful way that they too bubble up to the surface and we as Christ's body on this earth also watch over each other, kind of enact what God does for us in the same way that Elaine and Drew held me to the ground and I experienced God's presence. We can do that for one another in the ways that we watch over each other. But the third lesson, the third lesson is the most important of all. Remember those peas and prayers. In this festival, the Israelites are reminded or, or encouraged to offer prayers, inviting God to send strangers, visitors, guests into their life to shepherd them out of the wilderness. And it's not coincidental. It's not coincidental that on the greatest and most significant day of this festival when in Jesus' life when he's in Jerusalem the city would have been full of sakat, full of huts and all of the people would have been gathered there offering prayers that God would send someone to shepherd them out of the wilderness that on that day the greatest day of the festival Jesus would come into the temple and announce that Anyone who is thirsty, anyone who is thirsty could come to him and drink. That whoever believes in him, rivers of living water would flow, uh, flow from within them. Jesus Christ comes into Jerusalem on the greatest day of that feast and announces that he is the one that God has sent to shepherd his people, to show them the way out of the wilderness, to usher in a brand new, incredibly beautiful, fully restored kingdom in which all the brokenness would fall away and there would be no more tears, no more crying, no more mourning for a new order of things would come to pass. In Christ Jesus, God is shepherding us right into a brand new world. The third lesson of the festival is that God always shepherds. And this couldn't be more true than in Jesus Christ. God is making all things new. And those of us who are wandering through the wilderness or who know people who are, 
can hold on to the hope that there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ. Our hope, our Thanksgiving Day hope, is founded on nothing less than that. So what are we supposed to do with our friends, our neighbors, our communities? These three lessons that God provides, God watches over, God shepherds, need to be told. You and I are the body of Christ. And I know we feel fragile. I know we feel ill-equipped to be God's hope in this world. But that's precisely what we are. It's in paying attention to those who are suffering, whether it's your daughter or son, whether it's your neighbor or mother, whether it's a stranger, whether it's someone on your playground. In paying attention, we become more and more like Christ. I want to conclude with a story that I think that paints a picture of what this looks like. Because often when I'm faced with the hurt and suffering around me, somehow I carry all that weight on my own shoulder. And I try desperately to figure out what it is that I can do, what it is that I can do to, to make their life a little better. And somewhere along the lines, a few years ago, I learned a lesson. There was a time in Guelph Campus Ministry that I look back on, and many students do, and we actually refer to it as Guelph Campus Misery. And it was November. We had six couples in our community that were dating. In a student community of, let's say, 80 students at the time, six couples. And they all had similar friends. And they all broke up within one month. And friendships were fractured. And I was desperately trying to listen to each one of their stories and walk beside them. And I was meeting with a student who was cutting herself back then. I was meeting with someone who was struggling with depression. And I was trying so much to carry their weight and to be a light in their life. And by the time I hit Christmas, I was utterly and completely exhausted, totally burnt out. And I remember at Christmas, sitting down, spending a lot of time in prayer. And this is what the Spirit said to me. The Spirit reminded me of the greatest lesson of this festival. The Spirit reminded me that I am not any one of those people's saviors. I am not the one who will restore them to health. I am not the one who's going to usher in a brand new kingdom. My role is to listen to pay attention and to point them to the healing power of Christ. In my prayer life, 
I was reminded that it's in Jesus Christ that we are saved. And our role is to carry each other, to pay attention, to pray for those around us, to point them to the Lord of heaven and earth who's making all things new. It's not our job to fix the world. That is being done by Jesus Christ. One last quote. Simone Weil said, not only that attention, paying attention is the rarest and purest form of generosity, she went on to say that prayer, prayer is the most profound way to reveal that you are paying attention to the people around you. Prayer is a most profound way to reveal that you are paying attention to those who are suffering. So people of God, hold on to the hope that comes in Jesus Christ. Proclaim the coming of a kingdom that has no pain, no tears. And pray, pay attention to those who are hurting in this world, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Let's pray together. Gracious and loving God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we know that you look down on the world and see such beauty and such brokenness too. And we know that that brokenness has driven you to send a most profound ushpizen, your own son, your own son who would live and model what it looks like to pay attention to those around him your son who would die covering over the sins of all humanity. Your son who would be raised again so that all things would be reconciled back to you and everything would be made new. Yes, there's brokenness. Yes, there's suffering today. But we hold on to the hope that you have planted in us in Jesus Christ. And we proclaim the coming of your kingdom until he comes again. And Lord, we pray that your spirit would empower us to be your body, your hands and feet, always paying attention to those around us. May your kingdom come and your will be done. Through Christ our Lord, amen.